Hi everyone, and welcome back to Showcal's Cyber Threat Briefing. I'm here and joined by Hugh Rayner, resident podcaster and consultant here at Showcal within the team. Hi Hugh. Hiya. Good, so welcome back to 2023, kicking things off nice. Uh, we, we had a little short break in, in December, but we're back now to give you the, the insights, the things that are going on in the industry, the things to be concerned about, the areas to be interested in. And we've got three nice topics for you to start off the year with. And we're going to try and cover things from the previous two months, so December and things in January, but keeping it quite relevant. So back in December, there was uh, an incident with LastPass. And we're going to cover that in a little bit more depth. There was earlier this month, one of Slack's GitHub repositories was breached, if you like, a data leak from it, if you like. Uh, we're going to cover that as well. And then recently, just now, there was some reports in the news around President Biden and confidential documents. So having well, I guess, uh, protectively marked documents even at his home address. And we're going to talk about that in, in the context of an organisation. So what does that mean for listeners? What does that mean for businesses? You know, ultimately, that's at a presidential level. But clearly, there are lessons to take from that into, into your everyday work. So, Hugh, shall we get to it? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Okay, so the last pass incident. So back in December, there was a fairly major incident. Uh, and obviously, we didn't do a cyber threat briefing back then so we're going to cover it today i think it's still a relevant thing i think there's still a question to be had around whether password managers are really secure you know should we be using them there's obviously been a breach here you, you know the single point of trust a single point of failure uh, if you like the attack essentially the, rather the impact i'll talk about the impact better, and it's probably a better thing to talk about which is that private vaults so people's last pass customers their private vaults were obtained by an attacker taken away and now we'll be able to be accessed if they have the credentials for those vaults or the, the passphrase of that vault. Now, obviously, there needs to be a, something to happen to get access to that vault, but they crucially have this kind of encrypted vault, this encrypted area, like if you like, and there's interesting things in there, so secrets and credentials and so on and so forth. So, Hugh, I invite you for your uh, feedback on this one. So what's your thoughts around this attack? You know, What's your immediate kind of takeaways from it? But I think it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because we've got quite a few different password managers available on the market. And LastPass seem to be disproportionately affected by this sort of thing. They've had the incident earlier in the year, which you know was reported as, as being resolved. And it turned out that that wasn't resolved and it was actually just worsening. So, you know, for them, it's certainly not a, not a great run of events. Certainly, I think, you know, on the whole, especially the concept of password managers are fantastic, right? To allow you to have well-chosen, secure, long, complex passwords that you don't have to remember for every service, all sort of wrapped around that one master password, you know, is really useful. And certainly for organizations that, that you know aren't using them or individuals that aren't using them, they definitely are a, a good tool. On the proviso that your master password is strong. I mean, you certainly want multi-factor authentication on your password manager as well. I prefer hardware-based, you know, so I've got to plug in my, my YubiKey to be able to unlock my, my vault. But with a really strong master password and, uh, you know, multi-factor, you're in a pretty good place, even in the event like this where vaults get compromised. Okay, perfect. So there are there's quite, a lot of, there's quite a lot of users for LastPass. It's quite a popular product. Um, and if there's people listening now that wasn't aware of this attack, didn't know it happened, what are the things that they should be doing right a second to, to safeguard their, their LastPass accounts and the things that are stored in there? Yeah, I guess. So the first point to make is if you're... Your credentials, your your vault is stolen. You are still as secure as your master password. Just because of the compromise, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of the deep de- uh, the data within your vault is compromised. 
It just means that the attacker then has the ability and the time, crucially, to sit and try infinite numbers of password combinations to try and get the password to your vault. Computationally, that's difficult. So if your master password is, is of a suitable length and complexity, then you're probably fine. But certainly, given that a lot of password managers these days also contain functionality to automatically rotate passwords on quite a good number these days of websites, certainly giving that a go would be good. If you feel that your master password is you know weaker, less than sort of 14 characters, then yeah, absolutely. You want to get rotating all of those passwords even manually. Okay, so that's the key takeaway, right? So it's to rotate those passwords that are in that vault. So people should still have access to the vault. Have a look in there and start to rotate your passwords around. And you're not wrong. So it is a, it's a, I guess it's a matter of time. So if you've got dog123 as your master password, probably not going to take too long to, to crack it and get in there. Um, but if you've got something quite complex, then the time frame will be quite a lot, uh, you know, a lot longer. Now, there's a couple of provisos to that, which is there's an assumption that LastPass should uh, be used in standard or well-known uh, cryptographic libraries and algorithms. If they've kind of rolled their own crypto, that might be another problem. So it could be a, an issue found within them. Well, certainly have, but that could be an, an angle to, to think about. Um, and so the, I guess the point is now it's a time ticking time bomb ultimately, right? could be anything from now to multiple years down the line. So the moment's certainly not passed, uh, right? So people can still make this change and do this kind of recycling of passwords now, right? Absolutely. And I guess you, you, you touch on it there, right? Just because at the moment your master password is, you know, long enough to be cryptographically secure and that it would take an infeasible amount of time for an attacker to, you know, crank down brute force it. You know, if, if you're like some people and you use the same passwords on services for 10 years' time, well, I don't want to make any any guarantees or bets now on on what um, you know the strength of this cryptography in in ten years, right? Technology advances fast. It does, yeah. And I should point out that my my own master password is not dog one two three. I just use that as an example. I saw a lot of people, you know, in and around LinkedIn. There's quite a bit of noise in the industry, and a lot of voices. People saying, you know, I've got to drop LastPass now. You can't believe you know people can't still be using these after yesterday. Get out now. Get out now. I wouldn't ever advocate against a particular service. I think we could stand here and say, use another provider and then another provider tomorrow has an issue, right? So it's a tricky bit of a ground for us to say that. And I think it has to come down to a personal decision for people. You know, what's the, what's your level, your risk appetite? You know, what, what kind of threats do you perceive to be in your threat model? And then work accordingly from that if you, if you believe it, particularly targeted or you're not particularly interested in individual, which, you know, 90% of us aren't then maybe it's going to be okay. You could do that cycling activity and, and move on from there. I mean, certainly if, you're, if your choice is between LastPass and not using a password manager, then LastPass would have to suffer quite a few more issues before I'd suggest that not using a password manager was the you know, better option. Yeah, and that does actually lead to my next question, which is something's better than nothing, I'm assuming, right? So, yeah, you just point, you just you just touched and put there. You and give the answer before I ask the question, which is yeah, we we would advocate for having something rather over nothing. And actually, there's a lot of lot of people are walking with a password manager in their pocket. You know, I personally use my iPhone, and it has the the password functionality there that's stored into the iCloud, using biometrics to access it. That's my you know what I use for my personal stuff, and then for work, we do have a a separate uh, password manager on, on the work machine. So, yes, I think there is a huge argument for using. I think they've got a massive place. And what they do is they make it quite frictionless. So you're adding quite a good level of security in a frictionless manner. So it's a bit more achievable for the wider general public and not just kind of security bots like us who, you know, will always kind of go for that that sort of thing as well. But the other mitigating factors in place here. So, yes, 
my vault might have got stolen and someone may have got access to it. Are those credentials always reusable straight away or is there something else that could be in place that stops that? Well, you know, like we've suggested on, on many of these um, sessions before, your account should ideally be protect, uh, protected with, with multi-factor authentication as well, which I suppose, given the way that some of these password managers have advanced, is also an additional area of interest, right? A lot of these password managers now allow you to store multi-factor codes inside that password manager itself, which I think for organizations with shared accounts is really useful because then you don't have a single person responsible for maintaining that, that MFA um, code. But I think probably my approach would be to store MFA in a separate application sort of giving you, you know, a decent level of assurance that unless both of both the password manager and your multi-factor service get compromised at exactly the same time, you've got time to rotate, uh, you know, from one to the other. I think that, yes, it's very frictionless, like you say, to have passwords and multi-factor in one service, but, you know, then you are put, putting a lot of faith in that one service. You are, yeah. Like I said before, it's a single point of failure, so... Yeah, something to something to, to, to consider. That being said, we all yeah, ultimately convenience trumps sometimes. You know, if it's there, it's, it gives you the option to go and put the, the MFA code in the in the in the password manager. Am I going to click it? Probably I do sometimes. But what people might do is consider a layered approach. They might go, yeah, you know what? This is my this is my email account. You know, it's it's the the most central piece of my online identity. I won't put that in there. I'll put that in an outer band. You know, so I can generate like authenticator or something like that, or I'll use a hardware token as you previously mentioned. To that might be the, the the way to do it to tear it up a little bit, so that you might have accounts in your in your online vault, password manager vault that you really don't care about. There's no card details stored in there. You just needed somewhere to store a, a semi secure password. Okay, maybe maybe they're okay to to keep the codes in with, but maybe select your top kind of three, four, five services. Have an out of band authenticator mechanism for them, uh, and go through that way. Yeah, I think that's reasonable, right? I mean, certainly you touch on it. Your email account is your holy grail, right? Almost all password reset functionality offers password resets via via email. So that is the one to keep very, very well secured. Indeed, it is, yeah. To turn this into a, an organizational conversation, are there learnings that the organizations can take here around around password managers? You know, what, what are kind of the, the key takeaways you would give to the to the listeners on that? Yeah, so I guess there's sort of two two sides of this, right? There is that that enterprise use of password managers, which for you know discussed managing shared accounts, especially with multi-factor things like that, allowing certain individuals to access credentials for a set period of time, monitoring their usage, seeing when they're rotated, and things like that. You know, password managers are are fantastic as long as they're you know configured well from that enterprise standpoint. But then if you're also offering, you know, employees the ability to have their own personal vaults with their own master passwords, it is obviously also important to have that education piece around the importance and the significance of that master password so that we don't end up with dog123 as the as the master password for employees, because obviously then any credential matter that, that employee has access to under through their master password, you know, it's the weakest point of failure, right? So you shared credentials are only as strong as the weakest password used by your employees. Yeah. And so you tell me that dog one two three is not a good Absolutely master dog right, one two three okay. is is not good. Okay. I think I need some extra training in that case. I need to change a few things. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. So as always the right it's layered it's a layered approach. So yes we could put 
a password manager for people, that is better than writing it down to a notebook or sticking a post-it on your screen or using something shared across many different logins. So yeah, we've got a technical control. But similarly, there's got to be some awareness training, some usage training, some policy procedures, you know, the kind of wraparound piece to give that extra layer of this is how we use it, this is how we use it sensibly, and kind of add a, a people element to that to that matrix. Because, we, you know, we, we don't live in a perfect world. Not everything's technology and not everything's people. There is a crossover of things. So this multi-layered approach, we talk about this quite regularly, but the threat briefing has been the, the ultimate way to, to get around things. No silver bullet around Fantastic. Okay. So I think we might have covered last path there on this particular one. Um, so shall we move on to the next topic, which is a piece of news that was around a few weeks ago um, related to Slack. So the news article was talking around that Slack, they store their code repository for the platform, the application, the products in GitHub. And there was a, a breach uh, of that repository. And by breach here, we don't mean that someone's you know dropped it back down to the server, got into it that way. It could be anything ranging from a publicly accessible repository that wasn't supposed to be publicly accessible, some leaked credentials that someone's then used to log in. So there's multiple aspects to how that happens, but the impact is essentially that the code base, or parts of the code base at least, have allegedly been stolen by an attack group, a threat actor, ultimately. This is not an uncommon attack, right? So we've seen similar versions of this previously that have affected other companies, not Slack, but other ones as well. So can you just give us a, an example of one that we've seen in the, in the recent past? Yes, yeah, so um, I guess it's yeah. This is this is quite similar to the incident that affected uh, you know Okta a short while ago, and you know certainly I think it's something that we're seeing our our clients getting more um, interested in things like securing and looking at the configuration of the wider sort of CI/CD pipeline, especially including you know these these third party platforms where we're storing a lot of you know either very sensitive IP or, you know, credential matter, access keys, and that sort of thing. Yes, yeah, certainly it is a, it's a hot topic right now. Okay, and we're seeing the more people. I guess it's that, it's that blurred lines, right? So previously you would have had your, your code repository within your internal network. You would have had a VPN into it, or you would have been in the office to access it. But you kind of got this outer layer. And we're seeing that blurred quite a lot now. So we're starting to, and not just now, but over the last five, six, seven years, we're starting to see a lot more usage of, cloud-based services, so things like cloud-based, cloud-native. So you don't have that, you, well, you can host your own Git server internally if you want, but if you want to use the publicly um, provided version of it, either free, freely or paid for, then that's sitting out there on the cloud, right? And so you're, you're reliant on other factors then to to provide that that level of you know access control ultimately, and so that, that layer of security that surrounds it. So yeah, it's quite, it's quite common now that you would see that, and I suspect, you know, people if you said to someone can you tell me about your external perimeter be shocked if they actually said well you know what we've got these ips over here these physical locations here and we use github and we use this kind of service provider this cloud service they might forget that middle category presumably because someone else is it's somewhere else it's kind of out there and it's not actually so it is part of uh, you know an, an organization's digital footprint it's part of their external attack surface uh, and indeed the information you do find in it especially the GitHub repository, is, you know, and can be regularly used in, in attacks. You know, it can form informative steps within within an attack chain. So it's really important that the clients and, and organizations get a real good handle on what's out there, where the data sits, what controls are surrounding that, uh, who has access to it, and how do they monitor access to it, how do they respond to access to it that's unauthorized, and so on and so forth. So there's quite a lot of aspects to it. Now, there's this kind of ever-swelling ever attack surface that, really needs to be kind of kept under control. 
I think you know with these with these SaaS products and services, they're operating in such a hyper competitive market that you know a lot of the time it's got to be really quick and easy to set up and deploy these SaaS services in and integrate them into your your processes and your organization. So. If, you know, at the time you, you're signing up for the service, you do have to sit down and configure all of these options and, and you know, enable commit signing and, and multi-factor on every user's account. It's going to make it harder to get to deploy those utilities, which is going to, you know, reduce the uptake of that software. So, you know, that's why a lot of these SaaS products are they're not insecure in their default configuration, but they're not hardened to the extent that perhaps the rest of your organization would be. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I suppose there are benefits to this, right? So you've mentioned it early on there, convenience. So you can get up and running with a GitHub repository within five minutes, let's say it's all there, it's all working. To do that same level of effort internally, you're talking quite a vast amount of effort, right? Plus someone to maintain it, someone to look after the server, another thing to keep patched and updated, right? So definite benefits for using it that way, of course. Yeah. And then you kind of got to temper that with, we are now starting to expand outwards a little bit and we need to get a, a you know a rain and i'll put a net around it if you like we've talked about there so i guess we kind of covered the recommendations here so it's it's knowing what you've got knowing what's out there knowing what services you're using knowing what your where your data sit you know what's out there what and, and ultimately classifying the data i think could be quite an important thing getting that out there we'll, we'll cover a little bit more of data classification in the next piece you know acknowledging that your attack service expanded it's not just your you know your actual perimeter and your internet facing routers and firewalls and things like that but it's this vaster circle of bits and pieces that are out there that make up your organizational digital footprint three key points you so what could what are three things that organizations can take away out of that little snippet there for us to kind of action today yeah so i'd say you know definitely audit and understand your um, public and your private presence on on sas code repositories things like that mm-hmm. Definitely want to know what's public, what's private, how that's protected, and the sensitivity of that data in there. You know, you can go further with that audit. There are tools and utilities there that, that will go through public repositories and, you know, they will look for things that they consider to be sensitive. You know, any any access keys, anything labeled passwords, things like that, that can be really useful and valuable. So I guess that's one of them. You know, we can just understand the configuration and the controls there and make sure that the configuration of that SaaS service is going to be in line with the rest of your your IT security policy could obviously be you know, a really good one. And I guess looking for a third one is, well, there, there, to be honest, there's, there's quite a lot of things we can do really, aren't there? For, for you know, specifically looking at these these code repositories is is understanding and making the, the, the development team aware of the access that they've got because the way, the, the way that these have to work, right, is that everyone needs the ability to add to that repository and pull from it. So making, again, like we've been discussing with the, in the password managers, letting making sure your employees are aware of the importance of maintaining you know, good hygiene and security around the credential matter that they hold. Yeah, and not, not checking in credentials and keys for various servers into code bases. Probably avoid that one if we can. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Hugh. So the last third and final point for this briefing is around... A news article, so President Biden, and throwing the words here allegedly, because I think it's important that we do that, has been, so it's been reported that he had classified documents in his home. Now, obviously, his home is not White House, and a clear differentiator here. And so there's what they consider to be a, a security breach of those documents, uh, I think is how it's kind of playing out here. 
we're not here to necessarily comment on that piece of news um, or anything like that, but what we can do is take some lessons from that. So, Hugh, how does that piece of news relate to regular businesses? Because clearly that's a presidential level discussion point. You know, that's happening at the White House and president level of the USA. Um, but how can a regular business take a lesson from that? What can they learn from it? Yeah, well, there's some quite clear analogues, aren't there? Especially in today's world, you know, a lot of people working from home, whether that's, you know, in a, in a hybrid role where you're spending some time in the office, some time at home and, and taking things, you know, back and forth. The level of the risk presented to your organization is therefore, you know, somewhat related to the security of your own employees' homes. You might spend hundreds of thousands of pounds on nice secure access control system for your office, locked cabinets, well-written organized policies on, on maintaining secure data and things like that. But then if your employees are taking that home, you have no assurance over those, the security there, whether things are left out. Most people probably don't lock things away in their cabinets at home, right? So there's there's obviously that risk there. Even in you know fully remote roles and things like that, and, and and not looking at physical stuff. You know, we we see it all the time, right? People working on documents at, at work need something needs finishing off over the weekend. They'll just email themselves that document, crack on with it on the weekend and, and then email it back to them when they're back in the office. Again, all of the data security controls that you're applying to that just don't apply. And you know, they're lost when they're on that user's personal device. Okay, so you take it straight out of the, the environment that is controlled ultimately into an uncontrolled environment yeah, exactly. and therefore the controls that previously existed not necessarily there anymore, which is a completely valid point, yeah. So the impact, right? So could be anything from loss of customer data, organizational data, trade secrets, if it was that severe, you know, PII, essentially. I suppose you could lose employees, personal um, identifiable information. Uh, so there's quite a big impact here, right? Um, but I guess crucially... And I suppose we will counter this with context is key. So it's all well and good picking up a piece of paper off a bus seat that has a couple of names on. But if there's no indication of the company name on it, what it's useful for, any other kind of contextual information, it does lose its value a little bit. So it is all about the context. If you're losing big piles of documents and a big box of paperwork, that's probably got quite a lot of context. I'm a little bit concerned about that. Your piece of paper here and there probably has a lesser impact. And also I'm not reduced, I'm not, you know, trivialising it, it's obviously not great, but I, I kind of want to suggest that there's, a le- there's levels of impact to this, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And the, the bus, I'm sure I've read and remember a few years back, there was something around someone leaving fairly sensitive data on a bus seat. And that's why I mentioned it, I think. That's been around a little bit. I don't know if it was government level, UK government level, perhaps. Um, that I think so, thing. yeah. It happens, right? It could be a bus seat, a train seat, a train table. You kind of see people working on trains regularly that are typing away leaves pops of loo, leave all their stuff everywhere, machines unlocked. Obviously, that's a major concern, but there's paperwork everywhere. That I've seen that happen, you know, regularly and recently. Coffee shops would be another example. Uh, like you said, breaking into people's houses, car getting broken into, even though you've got sensitive documents in your car and you parked it up overnight. So, yeah, a multitude of different environments that can happen that's not necessarily the workplace anymore. So the next question is, how do we fix that? So what are the steps that an organization can take to reduce this type of thing? And I don't suggest we'll ever get rid of it properly, but what can we do to reduce it? There's little things we can do, right, in, in relation to you know some of the aspects you were talking about there, about working in trains and coffee shops. Just things like privacy filters and that on, on your laptop you know, can be great for stopping things like shoulder surfing. What, from a more organizational perspective, now I think we're probably going to be the third time of mentioning this, right? 
data classification. We talked about it in in choosing which services to you know potentially include in your your password manager. Talked about it in relation to the, the Slack's GitHub breach. And now again, data for class, data classification is is really important here. So you know the policy might be that these documents are okay to to be printed out and exist physical copies because obviously as soon as anything exists as a physical copy, you know, and none of your technological controls apply to it. The contrast to that would be you could say, okay, these things don't get printed. Controls like that can help manage you know control over your data. Great some of the cloud-based offerings, you know, especially within like Azure and the Microsoft suite around um, you know automated data classification there things that will prevent those documents from um, you know being being emailed out being accessed by individuals in the organization outside of certain groups you know the world has come a long way in a very short space of time i think around um, you know some of that data classification it has yeah and it's all about being seamless so you quite right the easier stuff there's this products like AIP, for example that will often be bundled into most people's license levels if they're in microsoft house um, and that'll do automatic things. Obviously, there's, there's a huge rule-based engine that you need to set up, but that'll do automatic tracking of and classification of documents. And then you can tie that into DLP solutions, so you can track where a document's gone. Is it being lost? Is it, has it gone somewhere else that we didn't want it to go to? And I think then we come back to the point we made earlier on across actually all three of these stories. It's a layered approach, so you can put technical controls in place, encourage users not to print things and mark sensitively. And then there's the people layer, right? So regular training and awareness sessions. So don't forget, this is how we classify documents here at this company. And this is what we do with them. This is what we don't print. This is why we don't print them. Here's a policy that outlines all this kind of stuff. So there's multiple layers, again, as, as, as there always is, to kind of solve this issue, right? And, and I, I think there's a couple of things we could have, yeah, and, and we are taking and, and hopefully the audience can take from the things that have happened across the pond with the guy in charge. Excellent. I think that covers everything for this episode. Good little so, roundup. I think so. Um, so that's two months in a nutshell. But Hugh, thank you very much for your your attendance, your contribution. As always, much appreciated. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you in a month's time.